first lesson this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 through 23, and you can find it on page 1044 of your pew Bibles. If I proclaim the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting, for an obligation is laid on me, and woe to me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For I do this, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my proclamation I may make the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to, be, to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share in its blessings." The gospel lesson this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses, not, verses 29 through 39, and you can find it on page 911 of your Bible. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Will you pray now for me as I pray for you? Loving God, we do lift up your word today and ask you to speak to our hearts. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Every once in a while, we have to look in the mirror and answer the question, who are you? And I was thinking this week about a time a few years ago, we don't actually have to say how many, when I had just graduated college, a few years, and had just begun my first job at a church as a full-time youth director. I was this congregation's full, first full-time youth pastor. 
And in addition to me starting at that church in early June, there were a couple of other new staff people in that congregation. And so the head of staff determined that it might be a good idea if the staff had a retreat together to have an opportunity to get to know each other and think about the work we would be doing together in the coming days and years. And as part of that retreat, he invited a consultant to come in and do one of those personality tests, you know, sort of like a Myers-Briggs. I actually don't remember if it was the Myers-Briggs, but it was something like that, where you go through and you answer, you know, a hundred different questions of, you know, do you prefer this or do you prefer that? And, you know, supposed to give you an idea of how you're going to work together with other people. And, you know, so you take this and then you chart your, your answers in groups and you end up with something that looks, you know, a little zigzaggy on the chart um, that gives you your numbers or letters or whatever that tell you about who you are. So I filled out the form as directed and then I started plotting my numbers on the graph and I got this, a straight line. And I'm looking at it going, this doesn't look like what he's showing us this is supposed to look like. I can't even figure out which letters I'm supposed to be or numbers or whatever it is. And I showed it to the associate pastor who was sitting next to me. She kind of went, well, that's weird. And, and so she called over the consultant who looked at it and said, well, that's weird. But then he looked at me and he, you know, maybe he could tell I was young um, and said, so what's been going on with you lately? And I explained that I was just recently graduated from college that I had interviewed with a number of churches and had settled into St. Luke's and had just gotten my first new apartment. And, and he said, oh, do me a favor, put it away, hang on to it for six months and take it again. It'll be fine. But he said, you know what? You've been trying so hard for the last several months of your life to be all things to all people that you don't even know who you are anymore. For a little while there, I had lost the answer to the question, who are you? Now, you'll be happy to know that it didn't take very long before I became, again, the young woman that my mother always said I was, you know, the girl who would argue with a lamppost if it got in her way, who held some fairly strong opinions, who knew who she was and where she was going. But for a while there, I had lost that. And so I, when we read this line in Paul that we are called to become all things to all people, that Paul himself was going to be all things to all people, you got to wonder a little bit what that means. Does Paul mean that there's nothing that matters? That he just flips a switch in himself to look like whatever group he's with today? That doesn't really sound like Paul, who probably didn't argue with lampposts because there weren't such things in his way, but whose strength of opinion and argumentative nature might have had his mother saying that he would argue with a stone wall if it got in his way. But at this point in Paul's ministry, when the book of Corinthians was written, he was no longer the new kid on the block. 
He wasn't freshly graduated into new life as a Christian or new life as a church planter. Instead, he's well into his career and his missionary journeys and well into his argument with and about the stone walls that some of the church leaders keep trying to put up. The general argument that was going on across the early years of the church was, who do you have to be in order to claim the name Christian? And it was typically framed in the question of whether Gentiles, that is, those who came from faith traditions other than Judaism, should have to become Jews first, or at least simultaneously, with becoming Christians, or whether they could maybe become Christians without having to become Jews first. In the specific, in the book of Corinthians, the argument at this point is whether or not Christians can eat meat that is sacrificed to idols. Paul argues again and again, and most emphatically in the chapter that immediately precedes today's reading, that Jews and Gentiles are set free by Christ, and as long as they are in Christ and following Christ, they are free to let go of the rules and restrictions and organization of their previous lives, Jew or Gentile, and live only under the law of Christ. Because they know that their God is the only God. It doesn't matter if the meat was sacrificed in honor of some idol they don't believe in anyway. But Paul also acknowledges that taking advantage of all these freedoms might cause others to stumble in their faith. That just because you are free to do something does not necessarily mean that it is good to do it. And so sometimes he says he is careful about which freedoms he takes, depending on which group he is with. If he is with a group of experienced Christians who are not bothered by eating that meat, he might eat it too. But as if if he is with a group of newly converted Gentiles who used to worship at those altars, those idols in question, he might refrain so that they do not see him doing something that they are not yet comfortable with. The Corinthian church was arguing amongst itself about how things should be and trying to force Paul to take sides, but he refuses to give in to their pressure. Instead, Paul asks those with power and status to come alongside those they consider weak or other or outside the law and look at the situation through another perspective. Paul wants to be sure that nothing gets in the way of the revelation of God's truth in Jesus Christ, trusting that as each of these groups he identifies grows in their faith, they will also grow in their understanding of what that freedom allows them to be and do. For Paul, to be all things to all people does not mean that he doesn't know who he is or whose he is. It doesn't mean that he's wishy-washy and has no personality, that he flatlines out the test. Instead, it means that he understands the importance of meeting people where they are. Because the most important thing to Paul is spreading the good news of Christ's love and saving grace. 
For him, that is now the only thing that matters. Not who goes through certain rituals, not who holds power in the church, not who eats the meat sacrificed to idols and who doesn't. Paul also tells the Corinthians earlier in this chapter that he isn't all that interested in them telling him how he's supposed to do what he's going to do or how he's going to say it. Paul knows who he is. As he tells us elsewhere in this epistle, he is an apostle. He's one sent out to proclaim the good news. He's a seed planter. He's the builder of this Corinthian church. He's a teacher, a fool for Christ, he says, a servant of the risen Lord. And because Paul knows these things about himself, he's not focused on how things are going to get done and the details and minutiae of it, but on the why. Getting the word of the gospel of Christ out to as many people as possible is Paul's why. When a new church is formed, whether the new church in the early days of Paul's preaching or a new church maybe a couple hundred years ago, It typically starts with a why, to reach as many people with the good news of Jesus Christ as possible, and to care for the people who need care the most. And so a new church often starts with worship and mission, and begin to develop relationships. And as relationships are developed, people start creating a community. And as the community develops, a need in that community is for the nurture of faith, which develops into programs and activities. And then the programs and activities need administration and leadership, and systems are, become established to maintain the life of the community. Yet across history, whether from Paul's time or our own. The big C church, as well as our individual congregations, often fall into the trap of becoming more concerned about the systems, about how we do things, about what we do. And we forget why we're doing them. We lose track of who we are. We get anxious because well, some folks might be leaving to go elsewhere. We look backwards and wish things could go back to being the way we were, the way it was when we liked it best, or connected most fully, or felt most fulfilled. In the midst of a cultural shift, like the cultural shifts that are going on around us now, we see what is happening to churches in the world, with few exceptions. And we fear that same loss of stability or loss of relationship, loss of relevance. We see what's happening in the world around us. And so even if we don't feel anxiety about our personal place in the church or in the world, we surely see the anxiety of what's going on in the world around us and in the instability that we feel in that world today. And in a time of instability, whether it's in multiple staff transitions in a local congregation or in the instability that surrounds us in the culture, we often look 
to figure out the how and the what of the work of the church in order to save us from our anxiety. I have now in the last, well, now you're going to be able to count it up, almost 30 years of ministry, been a part of congregations that have responded to the changes in their church and the culture around them by doubling down on the what and the how. Let's add more programs. Let's think up more new ideas, more stuff, more staff, more departure from structure, more structure, more like we how we used to do things, more less like how we used to do things. Whatever, just more. And these congregations try to address what makes them anxious with fix-it responses. Let's just fix it. We'll add this. We'll do that. But all of that how and what, all of that more, all of that programming doesn't tell us who we are or why we are here. And when we lose our focus on why we are here, we become not all things to all people in Paul's terms of meeting people where they are, but all things to all people in the same sense of that 20-year-old that I was, unable to do anything with strength or integrity because I lost my sense of who I was, trying to make everyone happy and to be who they wanted me to be instead of who God had called me to be. I tried to look like other youth directors. I tried to do things the way the really wonderful churches out there that I saw were doing them. I tried to emulate who those people were. But I didn't find my integrity in ministry until I chose to be who God had called me to be and quit trying to be what other people thought I should look like. It's not a bad thing to take a look at ourselves, to take a personality test, as it were, individually and as a community of faith. But as we look at ourselves in the mirror, it's important to remember that we know who we are. We are children of God. We are called by God. And focus on the why of what we are doing rather than the how and the what. Can we say, like Paul, that we are church because we have had an encounter with the risen Jesus Christ? Is our why that the good news needs to be spread and that there are still people outside these walls, and I promise you there are, that need to know about the saving grace of God? Jesus knew his why. It tells us in the gospel reading that he looked at his disciples who said, hey, we got to go back and finish the job we started yesterday. And he said, no, we're going to go on to a neighboring town because I am here to preach the good news to all people. Paul became all things to all people so that the good news of salvation might be received by as many as possible. When we get our why in place, when we know who we are and whose we are, then the what and the how 
will follow and the anxiety falls away. If we don't get our why in place, then none of the what or the how of how we do things will matter. Do you know who you are? Do you know that you are children of God, called by God, gifted and graced by God, with the ability to meet people where they are and share with them your truth of what it means for you to have had an encounter with the risen Lord? Why do you claim the title Christian? What does that mean to you? And so I invite you to a time of prayer as the church continues in this time of transition. I invite you to continue to consider who you are and why you are called here. Why are you here? Why does this church exist? Why do you care about its future? For until we answer those questions, no other answer will really help. But we know who we are. We are called by God. And we are children of God. May we live that out. Even as we greet people outside these walls who do not yet know and cannot yet live into that truth. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we are your children and we thank you for the gifts that you have given us. Help, you, help us to live into who we are as your children and to proclaim your word to those who need to hear it in the ways that they are most able to hear it. In your holy name, amen.